You are listening to Jewish Tech Meetup, a Jcast Network podcast. This podcast is part two of the Jewish Tech Meetup that took place on Thursday, September 22nd. In this second section, Ronen Eidelman, an Israeli artist, writer, activist, and cultural producer, continues to share stories about a variety of his projects. The New York City Jewish Tech Meetup is made possible with the help of Makom Chadash, Repair the World, and Open Source Judaism. The next Jewish Tech Meetup will take place at Makom Chadash on Thursday, October 27th, and at the event we will welcome Leil Leibovitz, who focuses primarily on video game and interactive media research and theory. Dr. Leibovitz has also authored several books of nonfiction, including most recently The Chosen Peoples, America, Israel, and the Ordeals of Divine Election. He is also a contributor to the Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic Monthly, Descent, and Tablet. For more information about this event, please visit meetup.org slash jtech-nyc. Himself, um, I mean, the, the website is called The B Project, and the last one he did without me because um, I was busy with other stuff. And this was, he did it through the, the tent protests. Well, what happened in um, this July, um, I'll just, um, the, um, some young people in Tel Aviv went out with their tents to protest the cost of living and, um, and housing. And um, from that started a whole movement basically against the whole economic system in Israel that turned into a, 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 a countrywide uh, protest of 10 camps over almost 90 around the country and also big demonstrations. Just, did you and Guy, did you and Guy um, speak any Arabic or, or know any Arabic or were all of these conversations in Hebrew? Um, we speak a very basic Arabic, like enough to, you know, to, um, but not to have a deep um, conversation. So yes, we had the the the, when the discussions themselves were in Hebrew. We kind of declared the project as a Hebrew project. I mean, these are the people who also the website and coming in. So this was the first thing. Um, so I mean, yeah, of course, you know, the the halals and all that were in Arabic. But once we, yeah, the, the, it was in Hebrew. We we, we, don't, we don't have that level. And in Jerusalem, also, I would say was, I think it was like ninety percent Hebrew. And then there was maybe one or two cases that we switched to English. But I'm, I'm trying to remember. Um, there are some Palestinians that prefer English than Hebrew, but not really in the... Um, the thing is, we mostly were, when we did the journey, we were in the villages. We couldn't, you can't go, we couldn't go into the cities. That's, it's just not um, technically possible with a caravan. You know, we just wouldn't be able to go through the roadblock. But the villages, which is what they call Area C, we were able to go into. And in the villages, most people speak Hebrew because a lot of them go to Israel to work, or did in the past, and... So this is, um, you could see, this is one of the big dem- biggest demonstrations in Israel. It went on for a few weeks, so I'm not really sure which one we're looking at now. The thing we saw before is we woke up, we're not going to sleep, which I think is very symbolic of what happened. Um, yeah, um, the, the economy is free, the people are slaves. Um, and this is like um, just a roadblock. Um, that you could see, um, um, and you could see in a way that also a lot of this is also like kind of referring to 
um, a lot of early Zionist or Israeli myth. This one says, Odlo avdatik vatenu, like from, the, from Hatikva, from the hope. Our hope is not, we didn't lose it yet. Um, or bring, ba um, bring back Eretz Israel. Um, and I think in a way, you know, I'm looking at what happened this summer, and I think it was something that in a way we were also, in our journey, we were looking for last summer. And maybe also in Jerusalem. This has happened before. Um, now, you know, I was talking about home and in the, in the journey, and also, um, like, these, um, um, these protests started about home. You know, that's like the basic thing that people need a home, a roof over their head. Um, this one says, Bibi and Steinitz. Steinitz is the minister of, um, of economics. No, the finance minister are stealing from me, and I'm even, and I'm even right wing. Um, so it's this, um, this idea of, you know, people feeling that they're le losing their home, both their personal home, you know, but also their idea of feeling at home. And I think this also connects to Medinat Weimar, this idea of what is home, you know, where do you create a home. And these are things, you know, that I, I, in a way, I mean, I, I was surprised when it happened, but then looking back, I shouldn't be surprised because these are things we were hearing through our journeys. People were always talking about, like, you know, we're losing our country. We're losing our home. What's going to happen? I'm scared about the future, you know. And um, um, here it says, soldiers today, um, poor tomorrow. Or, um, yeah. And... Um, and the, and it's like you know, and it's it's kind of interesting because we went on these journeys to kind of find to refind Israel, and then um, it happened after that, right, right, right underneath my house. You know, in Tel Aviv itself, that's where it started. The tent became like the symbol of of, of a protest movement. Um, here you can see next to the Habima, the National Theater, um, and this is kind of like the daily routine <laughs> that um, and. You could see it's not, you know, it's not what you would really, you know, it's not like uh, a bunch of um, um, black-clad um, radicals at one hand or at the other hand, like, you know, what, you know, these kind of symbolic poor people. This is, you know, you could be working on in your neighborhood high-tech company. And inspired by this in part, uh, there's now a young black In on Rothschild itself, at the height, there was over a thousand tents, and and people, hmm? yeah. Um, you have to remember also in uh, uh, when you're talking about a protest of 400,000 people in Israel, that's uh, six percent of the population, which over seven million. So, um, and then if you take away, you know, children, sick people, whatever. I mean, it, it's really numbers that are unbelievable. It'd be like, I mean, what is 6% in this country? Um, I mean, what happened in Egypt at the, at the height, I think there was like eight, um, 4 million or whatever they say was 4% at the height in Egypt. There's just much, many more Egyptians. <laughs> right. All right. So, yeah, that's a good point. So, my, yeah, that's one of the reasons we're here. Um, this is just the doctor's protest, um, which I think had a lot to do with it also. Um, but I'll find a nice picture, and then we can, um, the Shabbat meal. Um, but um, 
Yeah, basically how it started, there's this um, young woman called Daphne Leaf, or Daphne Leaf, who lost her apartment, and she got sick of not finding one, and she just told her friends, I'm going to go out and, and put a tent on the boulevard. And they were like, okay, we'll help you. Let's start a Facebook page. And um, they started a Facebook page that said, I'm not going to give, it's like a pun in Hebrew, I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but basically it said, a state of emergency, we're taking a stand, we're going out with our tent to the streets. Um, this is not something that they invented also, it, was happen it happened in Madrid also, um, that people were going out um, with tents to the main square. I think that was also inspiration. In Greece there were a tent camp, and we know of course about the Tahrir Square in, in Egypt, there was a big tent camp. Um, for a few weeks till Mubarak um, resigned. So, um, and there's Facebook page um, kind of um, like with thousands of attended suddenly in that. But still people didn't really take it seriously because there had already been cases when people announced stuff and there were thousands of attendants in the Facebook page. And, and um, she went out and I, I even by chance remember, like I never watch news in the middle of the day but for some reason on that day, by chance, I was watching the news. And there was like this reporter who goes, okay, this is probably another failed um, attempt because there's only uh, a dozen tents here and it looks like it's not really going anywhere. This was like, at, I think it was like the five o'clock news. Already by the 10 o'clock news, there was a hundred tents. You know, people were, um, just people had to finish work before they were coming. And that's one of the main things of the tent. These are working people. People were going to work during the day and coming to the, to the to the tents at night, and um, and already by three or four days, I mean it just blew up. And then people in Jerusalem they started one, and then in Beersheba, and then then and so and very quickly pick up. So basically, it's um, one of the things I think a lot of um, like I would say old media was saying, oh the young people finally left their computer screens and they left their Facebook and went down to the streets. I think this is complete bullshit because they of course, but they didn't leave their computer screens and Facebook. They went down to the street. With their, you know, with their computer in their pockets, which are smartphones. I mean, this was all continuing. The Twitters and the Facebook. This was all continuing. You just there's no today. You could just you could do it from your tent. And one of the first things I know they did is that they filled they they made all the Roger Boulevard um, um, free internet. You know, set it up. Another like nice thing that happened when there was the first protest on Saturday night. The whole cellular system crashed. Um, just because there was you know. Um, too many people at the same spot, and I mean, of course, there's all these conspiracy theories saying they crashed it, so you know we won't be able. To, but I think it just no. So it is possible that it happened. But what happened already the next week? They put out messages all week. Anybody who lives in the central Tel Aviv in this area, open your wires so we could have internet and um, that. So yeah, so there was very much awareness. It was from the beginning. Um, it was from the beginning, it's, but that's again, I think, it's something I was similarly saying with the, with the, with how we saw in the journey. It wasn't even, nobody really talked about it, it was just obvious. It was obvious that we're using Facebook, it was obvious that we're tweeting, it was obvious that, you know, it's all, this is how we're communicating. <coughs> I mean, it wasn't, nobody called it, like, I know that, like, in, um, in, in Egypt, a lot of people were calling it the Facebook revolution and stuff like that. I don't really think people are referencing, because I mean, Israel is also one of the most Facebook-connected countries. Facebook is very popular in Israel. And also now all the cellular companies give you very, like these deals of, you know, free, you know, part of your, part of your, um, 
service. Yeah, I think they have it in all countries now, but I mean, you know, so you have unlimited inter internet for your smartphone. So it's really, yeah, so of course, this is the tools we were using. This is how we were communicating, and this was, um, um, I think kind of like the hacking, or not the hacking, but the, the techie community, it took them, for this protest, it took them around a week or two to wake up. You know, to, to really get the website going and to really have like, to send out thousands of SMSs at once and all that. And I think in a way it was, um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's just a lot of us were just very much out on physically doing stuff, you know, like building tents and really doing basic community organizing. And I don't know, I, I don't think there was a real need, um, you know, to, to have like, the thick, you know, the basic technology was there was being used, but People went, you know, hundreds of thousands went out to the streets because they heard about it. Uh, but what was also interesting that you didn't really need the old media either. I mean, so I guess it was, I'm kind of contradicting myself because I guess it was the, it was the new media. Like, I mean, things were being organized. Like any tent camp that started right away, there was a Facebook page and a blog and all that. Um, but I don't know. I don't really think that's a big deal. It takes exactly five minutes to put up a, page, a Facebook page. I don't know. I don't. I like. I don't. I don't. I didn't see this as something unique. It just seemed to me as a, as this is how we work. Access to social media is ubiquitous now. Mass market availability is relatively new in in scale. Yeah. No. No. There is. You could maybe argue that this protest wouldn't have been organized the way it was, or and maybe couldn't have been organized. Um, because the because I mean the media in Israel or is government owned, which clearly in these protests was against the protest, at a level of also not saying the real numbers, not not um, talking about other things, and then the commercial media which was quite mixed, some was supportive, some was not, and sometimes they the some ones who were supported with that, and they had different interests in being supported because the protests weren't only against the government, the protests is what were also largely against what in Israel we call the tycoons. The tycoons is uh, the, there are 16 families, uh, it's down to 16, uh, um, who own um, over, what is it? I don't remember the numbers, but. Um, <laughs> or something like that, and basically, and there's certain like um, businesses that they are like, whatever, there's one like family that owns, uh, or two families that own like 70% of the, of the food market, like of the supermarket. Uh, and stuff like that, and it's really at a level that, and you know, there's um, that um, one of the things that really brought a lot of anger were the prices of cheese that went up. The milk products went up 30 percent just in the last couple of years, and it's, there's absolutely no real reason for it besides that they realize they can make more profit. Didn't they Well, the thing is that there is the Tnuva, which used to be a, a, um, a dairy, it's the biggest dairy um, manufacturer, and it used to be owned by the kibbutzim and the moshavim, by the farmers themselves. And then it was privatized or un and sold to some multinational that nobody even knows their name. And then the multinational looked at these prices like, oh, Israelis really like their cottage cheese, and they'll buy it anyway, so why don't we just raise the prices? Well, I know, I mean, not that, I don't, like, it's not like Nestle. I'm saying it's not a known name. It's like, if you, of course, if you're in the stock market, you know the name, but it's not like a household name. It's, you know, some initials or something. You know, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's one of these companies that 
It's a big faceless corporation, but. No, but I, I'll put it this way. Somebody, I'm, I'm just saying some, somebody like me who's, I, I think I'm, I am quite politically aware. I never heard of this company before. You know, like, and then it turns out, and then they, you know, and this is just one example. You give many more examples of uh, that. So, so what was very interesting that there were certain newspapers that are owned by the tycoons that are really, like, pumping the, the hate to the government. And to Netanyahu, and turning it really into like a, you know, a political. And then there was like other news, like the Israel Yom, which is a Netanyahu, um, a Bibiton. It's the it's um, Edelson, Sheldon Edelson. But basically, his his money doesn't come from the Israeli market. And he's a complete uh, Netanyahu supporter. So his newspaper, which is a freebie, and it's the most distributed in Israel. I don't know if it's the most read, but it's definitely the most. So he. Right. It's it's a free newspaper given out for free, and basically, and they pay. Of course, he bought out some star reporters. But the thing is, so this newspaper, which couldn't really ignore the protests because they were very popular protests, as you see, so instead his newspaper attacked the tycoons and like the and like and the government is doing everything to fight the monopolies and also the government really supports the people. So you really saw like the, the so if you were talking about the social, I think really the only, the place where you're really able to, you know, know what's going on, get a kind of balance, get the facts and all that, and people were really educating themselves was really happening on the internet in an amazing way. And I really saw myself. I was really being educated. But what was really nice, this was all going back to the street. Like, there were classes going on every night in the tent camps. And people were talking about land ownership and privatization in Israel, and how the structure of all different things. Like, I really was coming back every night, or when I didn't stay to sleep there, I would be like, wow, I learned so much today. You know, and that was one of the most exciting things that was going on. That you really, I mean, um, this is a sign that I think is a kind of symbolic of, of what, um, of uh, like a lot of the message. This sign says, Mubarak Asad Netanyahu. And you see the shaking chair. That's the picture. And the guy next to him said, my message is too comp complex for a sign. And... And I think that's what the thing. On one hand, there were very you know, straightforward things. We want to take Netanyahu down. We want a change of the system. We want a change of the government. And then there was like, oh, no, but it's very complex, and let's talk about it. You know, and, you know, and it's not so... And they're like standing together, you know. Um, or, um, or this one says, Rothschild, the corner of Tahrir. So there was like this um, big um, um, Egyptian um, inspiration especially like for the people going out to the streets and demanding um, a change. Um, here it says in Arabic, it says go. And this is what they were yelling to Mubarak. And then in Hebrew, it says Egypt is here. And um, now it's not only, I mean, this could be two people who made this sign, uh, but I think the significance also is that the sign stayed. You know, it's not only that it was there, but it also lasted. Um, Um, here it says, we're not buying September. And, and then in little letters it says, spin-tember. 
like the spin of September. Uh, a lot of them were from, yeah. Active Stills is a collective of still photographers um, that was established around five years ago. Um, the, hardcore, the main group is five, but they have other people who come and go into the group. Um, they work as, um, as a collective, meaning um, they, and, they, and they compete quite well with AP and Reuters. Um, they're really good photographers. They have much better information than the fire and photographer. Like, than that, you know, they know they'll know almost of any action or things going. They're both in Israel and in the territories, and sometimes in other places, right? And everything they do, they put up on on, on um, Flickr. It's anybody could use it. Their stuff. Um, anybody could use their stuff if it's for nonprofit. Um, of, um, you know, credit given. And, uh, but if any um, commercial uh, or newspaper wants to use it, they have to pay the going rights. And they've been uh, also in these processes. They've been on the cover of Aretz and the cover of the economics. And I mean, they really work well as, as a, um, as a uh, photography wire. But one of the nice things is like, I've used them all the time. And like, anybody use them for nonprofit, um, you don't even have to ask. You could just use it. And, uh, and they're great photographers. <laughs> Yeah, then. Yeah, one of the things is that they've always also been in both fields of what they call in Israel the social and the political. Like, you know, they were also always like if 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 a um, a single mother family was kicked out of their public housing because they didn't pay the rent, they were there also. I mean, they it, maybe that's less awareness in the international media, but if you look at their website, they always did social projects, and so they were there, and they and they're really networked. And the thing is, they also see themselves as activists. They don't separate themselves. You know, they'll participate in the assemblies, they'll talk in the meetings, they'll that that. They don't do this like. And they don't hide, they don't need they don't feel they need this separation. There is been many times arguments because sometimes even the police say to them, How do we know if you're here as in your job or you're here as an activist? But because of course the police all know them by now because they're everywhere. But <laughs> right. But it but it really raises this question, I think, in a very interesting way. Um, 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 and here um, you could see my arm all the way to the right with the checkered um, shirt that's me. Um, we're voting for something. I don't even know what, but we, we vote. I guess I supported the, the, the what? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's Active Steals. Um, Well, okay, there's one more project I wanted to show, which is the, 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 the Lublin project. Now, the Lublin project is uh, a project that was supposed to be a, a technical project, but because of um, bad um, organization of the people who invited me, it didn't happen. 
This is the downtown old city of Lublin. Um, have ever, anybody been here in Poland before? Um, okay, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, you know, it's empty houses or a lot of them run down. It's this beautiful old city, um, only part of it, and we kind of, you could guess why the homes are empty or who lived there in the past. Um, yeah, it's, um, it, before the war, it was almost 40% Jewish. It, it was considered a Jewish town. Lublin was the first um, ghetto to um, be, um, what's the word, liquidated. And it happened so fast, and because it was the first, um, it just, um, there was almost no resistance. And also, um, almost 98% of the Jews of Lublin were, were killed, uh, murdered. And um, the thing is, also, nobody knew about it. It's like when the few who escaped... Ma managed to get to Warsaw, and they said, the, like, the ghetto is gone, and they're, like, gone to where? And they're like, no, it's gone. And they're like, where? Like, people just didn't understand what they were talking about. But what's quite interesting, it kind of stayed. Over the years, there were, like, poor Polish people that kind of moved in and moved out, but... Um, and it's kind of happened, starting this kind of phenomenon that you see in many old cities, that a few, like, hip people are starting, they're opening some galleries and some bars, but it's still at a level of... Yeah, which ha completely happened, um, um, which completely happened in um, in Krakow, for example. The Jewish quarter in Krakow is completely the you know the hip um, um, tourist area where everybody goes. And uh, just a funny, yeah, I'll just tell a funny story that um, I was. Um, this friend of mine told me that she was with a fr another friend, and they were said they were in, they got stuck in Antwerp for the night, and they're like, okay, let's. Right, and they said, um, let's go for a drink. And they're like, okay, we don't know where to go. It was the first time there. She goes, let's go to the Jewish neighborhood. And she's like, why go to the Jewish neighborhood? He goes, because in the Jewish neighborhood, there's always the best bars. And she's like, what are you talking about? She goes, in Paris, in the Jewish neighborhood, that's the most hip area. Rome, the Jewish ghetto, that's the most hip area. In Germany, Mitte, the Jewish neighborhood. In Berlin, I mean, best uh, that. In Hungry, you know, and, and she was going, Krakow, and like really going on, because what were the Jewish ghettos are usually, you know, it's like the small alleys. They were emptied out, you know, <laughs> then gentrification. And then she was like, realize, and, and then she said, okay, but the difference between Antwerp, there really are Jews who live here. So it's not hip. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> she goes, maybe there's some good bakeries, but. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> right. So around the city of Lublin, on empty buildings as well as had ones, the alleys of the old cities and in the newer parts, I posted photos of all kind of Jews who lived on these streets. In these houses between 26 and 41, I, it's photos that I got from the archive of the Diaspora Museum. In a modest gesture, I returned the people and the photos in the place they were taken. The photos show all kind of Jews, young, old, modern, religious, political activists, Bundist, Zionist, Nihilist, bourgeois, Hasid, yeshiva student, communist, who knows. In some photos, the identity is clearly visible, while in others, it's not so clear. Now, near the photos uh, appears different questions in Polish. And one of them would be, how you ha have you always felt different from your friends? Does your family hide a great mystery or secret? Does your grandmother mumble in her sleep in a foreign tongue? And what kind of Jew are you? And um, these were all in Polish, and the project was called Coming Out. And the idea was because um, I was keep on hearing stories from Polish, young Polish people about how they kind of discovered their hidden identity of the family and how they had to kind of confront it. Now, um, 
one of the things that happens is when, like, suddenly somebody discovers, you know, their grandmother on her deathbed tells them that she, they're really Jewish, and this is somebody in their, you know, 20s or 30s, a few things happen. They, they usually kind of start looking for this Jewish, lost Jewish identity. And I met people who became like these real Haredi guys, you know, from being, you know, Polish, almost right-wing, you know, <laughs> anti-Semites, really like doing this transformation. Or some become like these real, like, whatever, take this Israeli, um, you know, paratrooper identity, you know, and... and that wasn't here, it was some other big Nazi, but um, it was the, yeah, there was some, but anyway, um, so the, the um, and one of the things I was trying to show her that Jews come in all colors and flavors and styles and backgrounds. Um, so I took these photos to show, look, Lublin, which was a Jewish town, wasn't only Hasid, like dancing Hasidim like you find in the, in the gift shop. You know, it was, and, and then kind of confront the Polish, like, what kind of Jew are you? Like, you know, you all... Yeah. Um, now, I was talking about why is this a technical project, because the idea was to also have these kind of barcodes, um, you know, those square... Hmm? QR codes. And then people were supposed, when they come, it was supposed to be just the photo. When they come here, it will bring them to the website that gives the information. Because if you go into, now, there is a website that has information about who is each person in the photo, where the photo was taken, what happened to them, and um, who the photographer was, and where the, where the photo, like, how I got to the photo. So it was also bringing the people back to the streets, um, you know, with these questions, but also trying to, you know, Give them a, you know, give these dead people a, 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 you know, a presence, and but this whole internet part didn't, didn't, didn't work, did, we didn't manage to do on time for different technical reasons. But this is something I still want to do one day to have this kind of between the street art and that have this kind of relationship. I, I kind of like that is again I, this kind of low tech again. And then you know the first day we went up and it was some of them were teared down. There's still a lot of anti-Semitism in Lublin. A lot of people were understood completely what we were doing. I think they understood in two ways. First of all, that we're returning the Jews with that. But I also have to remember, they were also understanding, oh, it's an art project, gentrification is start. Like, almost in their subconscious, they understood, okay, what's happening in our neighborhood? And I kind of felt sorry for them in a way, for the, uh, because, you know, they have been, these are poor people living in this rundown neighborhood. At the other hand, it's hard to feel sorry for them, because they, I heard they really said, like, real, some of them really terrible anti-Semite remarks to me. So it was, it was, uh, um, yeah, so you see they were torn down. So then we got better glue, and we also hit, we started putting some on the second floor. So here you see, like, from a Zionist youth group, and you have this kid, and it was quite, um, but also I had a few moving experiences. There's this one old lady that came out from her terrace, and she said, thank you for bringing back my neighbors, which was really, and she completely understood what we were doing, and, yeah, um, No, no, she didn't know them, I mean, but she understood what we were doing and, like, they were kind of trying to bring back this kind of life that disappeared there. Um, you see, by the way, this guy's already from after the occupation. They didn't ha in Lublin, they didn't have a yellow star. They had to wear this um, kind of armband. You see the... Yeah. Um, and it's really strange. You see these run-down buildings. It's really beautiful in a way, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, wedding party, and I don't know, it's like, um, you know, you have the businessman, you know, and um, 
and here also you have this guy I found, and I, I kind of put him on the corner sitting, quite sad. And this um, graffiti above it says um, something like you, um, it's the equivalent of the, um, it's the Polish equivalent of um, you dirty niggers get out of town or something like that. It was, they said it was like the worst word possible. It was a very hard, it was a very hard week. I mean, like, really, like, we were, like, guarding some of the work, like, till the glue dries. It took, like, you know, and people were really, like, aggressive. And, like, I didn't understand a lot of it because, but, first of all, I understood, you know, aggression you understand, but also, like, the people I was working with were, like, translating to me. And it was, I was almost happy to go back to Warsaw, you know, like, oh, Warsaw, <laughs> nice liberal town, you know. <laughs> it's the East. It's, it's really, it's the tough East. And it's poor. I mean, you really, I mean, people don't realize it's still very poor. I mean, like, it, like. No, just be, it's an only an hour and a half, um, or maybe two hour and a half um, bus ride between Lublin and Warsaw, and it's and it's like the prices in Warsaw are more than double. You know, just like if you go to the market and buy fruit. I mean, it's really, um, yeah. So this is the the Lublin price. I got like an email after that. By the way, this is um, this parking lot. That was like another whole part of the the main part of the ghetto, which was completely destroyed. Um, the part that survived, which it was much, it was more mixed neighborhood. So, but, but that part was completely destroyed. That's where the like that was the ghetto, this whole parking lot. I mean, but they still have the yeshivat um, Chachmei Lublin is still there. The it was the first yeshiva that had a dormitory, like the first modern yeshiva, which was. Uh, until then, you know, you, you'd come to study yeshiva. You'd, you'd um, learn. You would sit with. You would. Uh, get a room with a family. Yeah, so they were like, they changed the yeshiva world by ma building a dormitory. Um, it was the, um, the, um, the, it was the medical school for a long time, and now it was after, it was returned to the Jewish community, and it's just a big empty building that they don't really know what to do with because there really isn't a Jewish community. Um, they managed somehow with tourists and all that because it's, there's also, um, Maidanik is next to it, so they have a lot of um, Holocaust tours. So they managed somehow to have a minion, like, sometimes. When I was there, there was no minion. There was, like, you know, I don't know, six people, you know. Um, so. But I was there off-season. Well, the season, by the way, is, is the school year when the school groups come, you know, from Israel, from the States, from that. Like... <laughs> Like in the summer, it's kind of, it's weird. The summer is off season because the tourism is mostly, the Jewish tourism is mostly Holocaust tourism. It's going to become a tourist town because they're already building a, an airport next. They, the Polish realized because it's such a beautiful place that they, and it's like this medieval town, they could turn it into a, yeah. But So that's um, Lublin. And um, yeah, you had a question? Well, I mean, the first step that I did with the Medinat Weimar project was putting up a website, and I put the... Well, first of all, the first step is that um, I came up with the idea, and I, and I wanted to write the 13, um, like, the principles. I decided there has to be 13 principles, I think, for obvious reasons. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, and 13 is a good number in Judaism, we, but in, in Christianity, 
it's considered a bad number, and I think that's just a very symbolic cultural difference. Like when you like when people act like, oh, we're all the same, we're all modern people, and then like it's just like a cultural difference that look in your culture it's a bad thing, in my culture it's a good thing. You know, like I'm going to use 13, and even people reacted, 13 principles, that's strange. I was like, yeah, yeah, but um, the um, and that's already started. I mean, of course, with the internet, I send it out to friends, and then people send comments, including yourself and other people, and then it was that. And when that was done, I put it up, I built a website, and I put up the 13 principles, and I also put up a support, um, there's this support page um, here. And you can see, I support Medinat Weimar. Please read the 13 principles if you feel content with these points. Fill out the form, and then people that. And here it started, it just like took off. I just started getting amazing reactions uh, from all different people. And before I knew it, like reporters were calling and, and yeah, so basically that's what I did. I started a, a webpage. Of course, then I, I linked the webpage to Facebook and I started, you know, you start with friends and all that. Um, yeah, it was quite simple. I could say the whole project, which um, had hundreds of um, mentions in German media, world media, um, both mainstream and, and both of that, um, was really discussed and it's still traveling around the world. It was shown in Montreal. It's being now shown in Berlin, but it was shown in Montreal, in, in Stockholm, in Bosnia, in um, Vienna. I mean, it's, it's really, as, as a kind of an art installation that has all that, it's really traveling around. And get that? The whole thing cost me like 200 euro. Because basically what I do, you know, I put up a website, printed some stickers, and, you know, and, and basically that's really what you need. I had, a, after that I did other stuff, I had a rally and all that, but all of this happens like, and I think it really shows if you have good content and basic internet skills, that's all you need. I mean, um, what, good content. Right, because, I mean, there's no flash animation here. There's nothing, I mean, this website is almost as simple as it could get. Um, you know, this also, I mean, it's something I also have a lot of argument with designers. Like, the logo doesn't have to be good. I mean, it has to be basic, but, you know, it just has to work. I'm a trained designer also, so. Yeah, I, I, I taught myself WordPress. Um, yeah, <laughs> I taught myself WordPress. I um, I could do basic, you know, CSS and um, and HTML, but it's really at a basic level. I I I'm really good in copy paste. Um, and another thing, I think, um, you know, a few years ago, I, really many years ago, I I heard this lecture of a guy who said how to start an independent label. And he goes, the first thing you need if you want to start an independent label is a lot of friends. Because they're going to be asking for a lot of favors. And it's true. I mean, you know, you need friends. You need, you need people, you know, like, whatever, we did pins. Yeah, and now, whatever, what I did in the museum, I could give out pins later. But, um, you know, pins, so um, I found somebody with a pin machine. I ordered from the internet the material. And I bought a case of beer, invited friends over. And because you have to cut them out, put them on the thing, take the thing down. And we had a pin-making party. And, um, yeah, um, you know, a case of beer could take you to a, lo a long way in Germany. Um, <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, um, yeah, I even had a friend who um, um, helped me edit a video once and, um, in Germany. And then uh, I went to Israel and I came back and I brought her a nice bottle of Arak as a present. And she got all offended. And I didn't understand. And then I forgot she was Muslim. But uh, she was Turkish. You know, and I was like, oh, no. She was like, why are you giving this to me? I was like, oh, but you helped me on the video. I was like, it's great Arak. And she's like, why are you giving this to me? <laughs> but, um, yeah, you make a... <laughs> yeah. Well, I know a lot of Turkish that do drink, so, you know. <laughs> or most Turkish I know drink. But, um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, I mean, really, there's not much to say about it. You just, you know, it's like, there's no... Sec I don't have any, like new media secrets, you know. With your project in Lublin, I was wondering um, whether you needed to consult with the local police, and also, how many photographs did you prepare? With what applications did you prepare them? And then, um, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about how you blew them up and got them printed, um, whether you prepared that before going to Poland, whether you did that in Lublin or in Warsaw, and just more of the, like, um, tachlis. Thank you. Well, the first thing is that um, I went to the archive of the Diaspora Museum. And um, the archive is um, basically built on donations of families um, who um, bring their personal, um, their private pictures, and then it's, it's documented. So I asked to get... Um, pictures from the streets of Lublin and that and I worked with the, uh, one of the women there who was excited and there already uh, we scanned them in the highest resolution possible um, some of them were surprisingly very high quality um, of the there was one series uh, of very high quality which was taken by an unknown photographer um, that they assume was a German officer. Um, it's a very interesting story because uh, it was donated by his family. Um, nobody really, because the people in the pictures look very relaxed and some of them are even smiling. So we don't, but we, the family knows he was a German officer who took, but he died on the, in the Russian front. So the assumption is that it was his day off and he was wearing civilian clothes when he took the photos, because people are very relaxed and, um, and smiling. Maybe they thought he was a reporter, you know, maybe, or from the Red Cross. Uh, maybe he gave them food. Um, even though this, this is 41, it was before the hunger started. You see them, they, they look healthy also, you know, and they're wearing good clothes, I mean, in these photos. So it's, it's kind of a strange, um, and also they had no idea what was going on. Like, it's really like, you know, um, really like the first month of, uh, you know, of the, and um, the um, so these were in a very high quality. They were like um, they were slot, uh, not slot, uh, negatives, and with the scan. Um, other ones I really had to to work on a lot, and I uh, worked with Photoshop. So I prepared them in um, yeah at home in Tel Aviv, and I came with um, a certain amount. I don't remember something like thirty. I think at the end I chose twenty, maybe a bit less by the spots. No, no, no. I came as files. And there we, we, I found a, um, a print shop, which, um, because I, I really wanted, I didn't know, there's lots of things I didn't know. I didn't know the, 
what kind of where I'd be pacing. So there was things like when I paced it on wood, it was much easier than on building. So there was a lot of um, try and test. You know, we used um, different glues, different paper. That yeah. So I was there a whole week before um, doing try and test, and then we we found a. Uh, it was, it's it was a a gallery that um, like gave me the support, like basically um, like. I mean, it's not that expensive, but, and the, so they, yeah, and so I had somebody, uh, like an assistant that we went and, you know, with the translation also, so we found some good print shop and we printed there and then cut the the thing, um, and the glue was a lot of try and test, um, especially because I'm, it was um, very humid and I'm, uh, it's kind of cold and humid, which I'm not used to working, so it took a long time for stuff to dry. Um, so then we found something on the internet that said add this chemical and it will dry much. So we went and found this chemical and it really, it's kind of like a silicon based thing and so it really helped. So that kind of solved our glue problem. Um, what was um, the other question? All right, with the, no, though, so the thing is, uh, with the police it was, um, we didn't really get permission, but like the gallery kind of got uh, like, a permission from the mayor. Uh, the thing is, it was, um, this is what's kind of nice about the East. It's, it's still not like the West, that everything, you know, that you, everything is very clear. So basically, the police would come and we would just say, yes, we do have permission from the mayor. Go talk to the mayor. And basically, they left it at that. I think they just didn't really want to deal with foreigners. Uh, it was, wasn't clear because we were also we we, we were just very assert, um, assertive. We were very assertive, um, you know, that we have permission and we're doing it and don't bother us. And we did it very in public. You know, we came with ladders, and we were working. And it's and it is a public gallery, you know. So we, so I think the police just were like, oh, okay. And you know, um, where we did get problems was really from um, we. Not knowingly, we um, um, printed on, we pasted on the wall of one of, the, there's a big Catholic university. It's like the Bar Ilan of, of Poland. <laughs> and they were very unhappy with us. And, that, and then we had to go and apologize and all that. We didn't know it was your wall. And that was like taken off right away. And yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, how expensive? I don't really remember. Yeah, but it wasn't that expensive because it's also Polish prices. So um, I don't think the whole thing was more than a few hundred dollars. I mean, I don't know. I can't really tell you. I don't remember. Um, maybe it was like, if I remember correctly, and I might be mistaken, it, it was. Um, I think it was like 20 euro. Uh, uh, uh. What I really did is also, I think you pay by meter, but it's quite wide. So I really, because there, it's bodies, I really managed. It sounds kind of horrendous when I'm talking about um, you know, people who were murdered, but I really like stacked them up as sardines in the on the paper, and then I was able to, you know, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I kind of, um, but they're all full real size. But some of them were only the chest. So, it really wasn't that much if you think about it. It might have been the whole thing, I don't know, four meter by 120. 
So how much how much did that cost? I mean, I, the thing is, I got a I got I was telling I it was I put it on my blog and it was very distributed a lot. This happens quite um, quite a lot. My street art projects I, I only showed one of them, but I have quite a few street art projects. They they really get to the Worcester Collective. You know them, Worcester Collective. It's a yeah they all they pull up everything I do. It's a, it's a street art um, website that's very popular, and every time they say what? Oh really? Okay, I didn't realize. But anyway. At the time, they, 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 they saw one of my projects, and each time, like, whenever I have something, I just send them an email, and, like, five minutes later, they're like, check out our website, and it's there. And once they post it, it's, like, everywhere. Like, they're really also popular in the Spanish world. And so, like, and then I was getting the, this request from some small town in uh, West Germany saying, oh, we really like your project. We have some dead Jews also. You want to come and do it there? You know, like, it wasn't those words, but, it, you know. And I was like... I wrote them back an email and saying, listen, I don't really like doing, um, I think each project is right for its place. I'd be happy if you want to discuss it. We could like go, you know, we could look at your archives and all that and decide what is the best project for your town. And then they're like, okay, okay, I'll get back to you. I hope you enjoyed the conclusion of the conversation with Ronen Edelman. We hope that you will join us live at the next Jewish Tech Meetup on October 27th. For more information, please visit meetup.com slash jtech-nyc.